I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Boston today with uh, Rick Willett, who's the uh, CEO of QuickBase, uh, which is one of the, I guess, the key innovators in the low-code movement. But more about that in a second. Rick, it's great to, uh, to finally meet you in person. Very much so as well, Michael. Thank you. Um, you really came up through the ranks in that innovation hothouse that is GE uh, before you joined QuickBase. Um, what did you sort of learn going through that process about, I guess, how we could be smarter about running companies? So one of the key things I learned at GE um, was the power of uh, analytical decision making. Uh, right. One of the strongest functions within GE was the finance organization. And just having data at your fingertips to make better business decisions was a key part of my experience at GE. And the second thing I learned um, was it wasn't the best planning companies that were the most successful, it was the companies that were fastest to embrace change. And uh, that speed of listening to people closest to the work is something that's kind of shaped my career and how I've built successful companies since then. So they were very good at not only collecting data, but fueling that data into decision-making process as quickly as possible. Very quick on decision-making and also having the ability to connect um, what they were observing in data to what we're hearing from the front lines. Right. So we, we would never make a decision just on data. We'd also really interrogate and ask questions of folks closest to our clients um, and closest to the work. To, uh, you know, action workout, uh, G change acceleration process, even Lean Six Sigma were all fundamentally data-driven tools to listen to those closest to the work. Back in those days, data wasn't as democratized as it is now. I mean, were they essentially had teams of analysts and data collectors to actually give that to executives? You know, I, I'd argue GE was also one of the first to be the most transparent organizations. Right. So it was not just to get all the data to give to executives to make the decisions, but we were, we were on the, I believe, on the front edge of um, ensuring folks closest to the work had the decisions to be empowered to make decisions on their own. This, this, was all, this all went back to Jack's uh, real maniacal focus on uh, empowering decision making to the lowest level possible. Right. And, and this is actually a theme, you know, I've seen you speak, you've spoken about before about, you know, the people closest to the work, empowering them. Um, where is the disconnect normally in big organizations? I think um, there's, uh, first, as a, uh, in, in an entrepreneurial company where it's 40 folks, there's no disconnect. <laughs> you're, you're right there with the client. Yeah. It's as an organization grows, you have um, a middle management layer that believe that their role is to manage. Right, um, where which, which is often sitting on information for longer than they Sitting should. on information, more, they're, they're afraid to tell their boss, um, and they feel that they need to be the one making decisions for their employees. So it's the, 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 the sclerotic area of an organization tends to be middle management, right. and as an organization grows, you get over a, you know, it's a bunch of science on this, but you get over a thousand folks um, in a location, you typically have two or three layers and now you get a real problem. You get to 10,000 people. I, I ran, the large company I ran had about 15,000 employees, and now you got five or six layers. 
and that it's those layers of information that uh, create the real challenge for big companies to do any, to, to grow, to be successful. And this is regardless of industry. It's just it a question of scale, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, it? It's funny though, because you know, cities like Boston and New York and London, as they get more dense and uh, they actually become more productive and more creative and companies almost the opposite. Like as you get more people together, it actually, you start to put these layers of bureaucracy. It doesn't have to be that way though. Right. I, I, think, I think if you on purpose um, structure work such that people are collaborating on, you know, um, uh, in, a, in a very focused way, I fundamentally believe if you have a really compelling vision of what success looks like, hmm. you have two or three priorities that you transparently share with everyone you develop a set of values um, of how decisions should get made. Um, you can then empower decision making to the lowest level possible. Right. Empowerment without um, a framework uh, of how decisions should get made is anarchy. Yeah. That's incredibly inefficient. Um, but if you've got a decent framework for what's important, I, I believe good people can be trusted. And, 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 and it's that good people being trusted is where I think what separates good companies from great companies. And empowerment here is not just a motherhood statement. I mean, I think one of the things, and we're going to talk about this now, behind the whole low-code movement is the sense that you're actually giving people concrete tools to make you know, transparent, actionable decisions. That's right. I'm going I'm to draw a, a, a real clear line between low-code and no-code. Right. And uh, the way I view the market is um, a platform for uh, business agility is really trying to solve the problem of um, uh, you know, the need for customized apps um, with a very limited amount of people that can build apps. Right. Low code is trying to solve the problem by enabling people that can, that, that can code a faster way to code. No code is focused on eliminating the coders and having the people that do the work every day as their job be able to build their own software to be able to automate that process, automate that activity. So we're really carving out that space of no code, eliminating any need to have a language right. uh, in the ability, because language, it can, be, it can be French, it can be Latin, um, it can be C++ or uh, you know, um, uh, Java. Um, it's 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 a it's it's a language that gets translated to a computer. What we're eliminating is the need to know a special language, and we're allowing the folks closest to the work the ability to customize their software for their process for their competitive advantage. And and why I mean is this so important right now? Like I mean, what are the forces that are driving this? I I think the world is changing at an incredible pace. Um, I think uh, you know business models change in three or four years rather than three or four decades. Um, I think you know a lot of times uh, you know I, I I was in the telecom industry for a period of tremendous change where um, your customers became your competitors um, and who then became your suppliers. <laughs> so uh, as as there's a, a proliferation of data, as the app ecosystem in a business skyrockets. As the, there's a need, you know, for greater security of information, yeah. um, having the ability to empower safely and securely those closest to the work to adapt to their changing environment faster 
um, is, uh, is the way software is going to go. You know, there's a big movement in software development five, ten years ago for agile development. Yeah. I believe no code is the most agile software development. Um, you know, instead of the iterative process of development team talking to clients, doing two-week scrums, no-code blows that up, and it's effective, because, effectively because the client is building right, the software. The, 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 there is no sort of IT business interface. It's just it's just the business user. Exactly. And also, I mean, it's good for the the, the true IT teams as well because you get more leverage out of them because they're actually focused on building the platforms that underlie everything. So I'm seeing a bimodal distribution of IT leaders today. Right. There's, there's, a, there's certainly a, a, a collection of IT leaders that believe their role is to control everything hmm. and to employ armies of development teams. There's an emerging and grow, rapidly growing collection of CIOs, many at our Empower conference this week, that view a platform that enables folks closest to the work to build their own software as a godsend to them. Yeah. They can solve so much more business problems by having a safe, reliable, controlled platform like QuickBase to enable folks closest to the work to take on the vast preponderance of development work. Now, there's still you know, some applications, uh, ERP, uh, some platforms for large enterprises that'll be done on, a, uh, on a, you know, a really complicated set of developer skills. That work will continue. Yeah. But the vast long tail of applications um, you know, we should be empowering those folks close to the work to be able to continuously customize it. There's an interesting subtext here around really how the nature of work and productivity is changing. Uh, I mean, you know, to be a leader or an executive 50 years ago, you probably needed, above all else, to have good connections, to be able to wear a good suit, madman style, and have a three martini lunch, you know, yeah. because you had teams of people from the secretarial pool who basically did a lot of the kind of the work. And, uh, and then, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we had spreadsheets and you had to get good at Excel and PowerPoint. So the tools started to define the work. But if you, if you, what's really interesting, I think, about what's going on now with no code and some of the things you're talking about is, you know, a lot of the work is actually sitting down with other people and solving problems with data, you know, which, which, which requires new types of tools and, and actually probably more importantly, new ways of thinking. New ways of thinking. I, I think the leader of the 21st century um, is going to be incredibly adept with information. So they're managing exceptions, not the routine. Right. Okay. I mean, they have to understand, they don't necessarily need to program, certainly, but they certainly need to understand the logic of algorithms. Right? Sure. Yep. And, and be able to manage um, the, 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 what, why something went exceptionally well, because so we can learn to do that more often. Right. Why something went exceptionally poorly, so we can learn not to do that again. But being able to, to, to analytically understand a process and focus on the, the tails of the distribution, one core skill. I think the second core skill that I look for in a leader is um, just an insatiable curiosity. Uh, the inability to not understand why. Because uh, that's where you know, that, that new leader needs to be thinking about how to design work. And therefore, they need to understand the rationale and what people are what people really need, right. rather than managing the routine. And I think the third thing that I look for in a leader is someone that is energized by problems, uh, that sees problems as massive opportunities, uh, and is constantly looking or creating problems uh, uh, that can be solved. And uh, you know, someone that is really energized by ambiguity, uh, energized by um, you know the ability to see problems as opportunities. Do those 
types of people generally come from a certain place? I mean, are they generally people that have come from a more technological background, engineering background, or do they tend to be, you know, arts and humanities type people? You know, I, I, could, I could have a parochial view. I'm happy to be an engineer. Uh, so uh, I, 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 don't think it's, I don't think it's their choice of study. Hmm. Um, I, I look for folks, uh, so I haven't seen a correlation of study. I, uh, we've got folks. Because engineers can go both ways, right? You they can. And in fact, there's lots of limitations to uh, engineers. Um, engineers typically have the hyper curiosity. Yeah. Um, they may or may not uh, have the, um, you know, the ability to see um, everything as an opportunity, right? They, they may want to control their environment rather and, 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 and make it perfect where, you know, the <laughs> folks that really... They don't, they don't normally like messy. Yeah, <laughs> where, where, you know, creative, creative collaboration often can be messy. It can be a little yeah. inefficient um, to get the best ideas to, to surface. Um, and anytime you go to school for so long to become an expert, you get a little bit of expert thinking. Um, where I don't, I'm not sure expert thinking is going to be the ones that are going to be, you know, pushing ideas to those closest to the work. Um, so we've got, I've seen leaders that have been, you know, art history majors that have been incredibly successful. I've seen engineer, you know, PhD chemists be incredibly successful. I, I don't think it's area study. Um, I think I look very much for what. Um, what in their life they've dealt with that's been really adverse. Hmm. And I'm typically asking in an interview, um, what's the one time someone really screwed you? And how'd you respond? <laughs> what, 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 you know, something, something are you bad happened. The, are you looking for the Liam Nielsen taken type of response? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could very well be. But just, you know, where, where something hasn't gone the way you wanted. Right. And then what, what'd you do in response? Yeah. And if they're a victim, they're never going to work in our company. If they go, I saw this as a huge opportunity to learn. Here's what I learned. Um, and here's what I would have done differently. And here's how I solved the problem for us collectively. That's a person you got to grab onto. Because that also feeds into the kind of the ability to manage exceptions as well. Mm -hmm. You know, because you start to see these as just information data points, you know, which mm -hmm. give you clues about what to do next. Um, because I think one of the big questions we all face as we start to understand what really drives productivity is what is the work that machines and algorithms should do and what is the work that people should do? Yeah. Because, um, I mean, people collaborating around, collaborating around a no-code platform to try and understand data, I mean, there must be something that they can do that a machine learning algorithm can't. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I think your speech today was really... Uh, it was an interesting analogy you brought up with United Airlines, and I feel terrible for them. Oh, that could have happened to any large company yeah. with, uh, with a client. Um, but being able to separate the routine and the process, um, which I think a lot of algorithms will increasingly be able to do, uh, the routine, um, you still have to have a human being have the, uh, the authority, the empowerment to override the algorithm. Yeah. And building companies one of, the, one of the key, uh, I, I took the America, United Airlines analogy and we spent uh, four hours with my senior team digesting what occurred there. And I, my personal view, um, hearing Munoz speak and flying on American Airlines, is they became a very um, employee-centric um, company. They, they weren't as customer-centric. Right. And, as they were employee-centric, you know, the first response he had 
was a letter to all of his employees that they did the right thing, they followed their process. Right. Okay. When in reality, the right response was what's going to make our customer happy so that they come and, they come and fly with us again. And I think as process, as algorithms take over lots of work, um, I think that hyper-focus on the client um, and empowering people closest to the client, the ability to overrule the computer, yeah. the ability to overrule the process. That's gonna be core of the experience design. Yeah. Uh, because you know, this is the irony, is that they, United became a very employee-centric company, but they actually hadn't empowered the employees totally. to go beyond the rule book. It was all motherhood statements. Yep, it really was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it, it's, it's it, you know, you know uh, there'll, be another, there'll be another corporate catastrophe next week that yeah. we can all learn from. <laughs> but, uh, you know, having the ability to be introspective about how, 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 is, how is, you know, <laughs> all this data, all this focus on um, leveraging the data to make better decisions, how are we still, you know, taking a step back and rec- trying to be as entrepreneurial as possible? One entrepreneur, one client, what, what, what would they do? Well, the decision-making thing is a, is a really interesting thing to unpack because, you know, not only is there a question of empowerment versus algorithms, there is also a question of, you know, sp- speed and and what you should be making decisions around and you know it always interests me when you look at certain companies that are very successful um, like Amazon you know what really underlies them is a certain philosophy just like GE had around the velocity of decision making and how to incorporate data and I guess my question is you know as people start you know using your platform and other platforms similar to it to, to, to making decisions you know with live data rather than just intuition and you know, gut instinct. How, you know, how does that change the process? You know, I, I, um, you know, I think it's gonna really be um, how effective our builder community is at building the apps that also are empowering folks to make better decisions. You know, our platform is incredibly flexible where mm-hmm. we're allowing folks closest to the work to use software to automate processes. Um, were they to make the same mistakes of making the process too automated so it couldn't be overruled by a human looking at the data, that's going to be up to the culture of that company right. and, uh, and the folks building those apps. What we're liberating is just a lot more agility to avoid the development cycle of user, builder, user, builder, iteration and really putting all the tools in the hands of the builder. It's really that design work piece. It is. Right. Have you seen it starting to affect decision making though? You know, we, uh, we use QuickBase throughout our company and um, it, I've never had more information at my fingertips as a CEO uh, than I've had at, at this little company. So I, I can't believe I was able to run <laughs> companies without QuickBase uh, in the past. And uh, what's, um, what's thrilling for me is that everyone in the company has the same information. Yeah. So uh, it's the tra- it, what, it, what it provides is just, you, you use the word democratization, I, I just use ubiquity. Every, everybody's got the same information and therefore we can trust folks to make better decisions. Yeah, the, the radical transparency of information is, is, is kind of a weird paradox. It used to be that information, especially when linked to seniority, was, was how you defined your power in an organization. Yep. Um, but when you look at kind of these new organizations, 
in a real sense, by making the information as widely dispersed as possible. You know, you can get more consensus and buy-in on, on decision-making. Yeah, or just not have the executives involved in decision-making. That's a terrifying concept for executives, though. It, it really is not to me. I mean, I, I try to pride myself every day is making as few decisions as possible. So, um, you know, I, I clearly have to make decisions on strategy. I clearly have to make decisions on priorities. Um, you know, I clearly make decisions on people. Um, but day-to-day -day decision making, um, anytime anyone brings it to me, the first question I ask is, so this is awesome. Why were you unable to make this decision you had to come ask for me? Hmm. Right? It's, a, it's an opportunity for me to figure out how to make our organization faster. Because anytime a decision has to come to me to get made, there's some, there, something wrong. Something, did, something didn't work where uh, the decision had to come to me. So what are the kind of groups of decisions do you think that strategic leaders should be focused on? I mean, you mentioned strategy, but, but I mean, clearly there are some things that are a better use of your time and things that eventually just should be automated or delegated. Interesting, uh, automated. Um, look, I think, um, I think leaders can't obfuscate the, uh, the responsibility of making decisions on people. So, um, you know, understanding your environment, understanding where the company needs to prioritize, you know, um, coaching, developing, nurturing, and uh, empowering people is probably the most important thing an executive can do. The whole kind of high order beliefs, right? Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, you know, um, I think uh, at the end of the day, the other role of leaders is um, helping an organization make decisions where there's ambiguity. So uh, a leader, when you think about strategy, it's really, if, it's interpreting the crystal ball. Hmm. And uh, you, know, you had a, a, a line up there, I can't remember from the executive, you know, if, um, if the data says uh, a certain decision, yeah. uh, uh, then we'll go with the data. Um, if we're only debating opinions, then we're gonna go with mine. <laughs> Jim Boxdale. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that, uh, that resonated with me uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, because I think it's, I think it's that, 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 you know, the, the role of a leader is, is really make good talent decisions and good dis coaching decisions, and then the second is um, to interpret priorities where there's lots of ambiguity, yeah. and uh, leaders can't obfuscate that responsibility to a computer or to, to the team. They need to be making decisions in the ambiguity everything else you should try to push as low in the organization as possible as uh, as close to the client as close to the work as possible yeah I, I mean I mean this 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 kind of sense of, of of the role of process in companies is a is a is a difficult question because you know companies that become very um, laden with processes become slow and sluggish but but processes are also a heuristic I, I mean they're a way of uh, of, of getting more certainty, of getting more reliable outcomes for customers. And I think the difference that you, we're starting to see with these, with these new companies is that rather than the process being defined by an outside consultant or you know, someone from top down, um, uh, certainly from talking to some of your customers, there's a sense that it, it's an emergent thing. I mean, you sort of watch the, the flurry of activity of people solving a problem for a customer and then you can bake it into an application, mm -hmm. which you can then change again quickly. So, so is, is, is creating process actually part of the problem solving? I think it has to be. I think, look, um, if, if you don't have a vision, you don't have clear priorities, you don't have processes for decision making, you can't empower. Right. 
so you need all three aspects of that. So there has to be a process in place for people to come together to make decisions on things. Um, I just think that those processes should engage the folks closest to the work rather than just being processes for, uh, for management. Yeah. So uh, process is incredibly important. Um, but it's really the process of collaboration and the process of getting ideas from everywhere uh, that's, uh, that's critical to the, the fastest moving companies. It's funny how we try to push the limits of that with things like holacracy. You know, try to eliminate all job titles and set very defined ways of people interacting. But, but really it was just the same thing of trying to find pe allow people to solve problems without being burdened with titles and departments. Yeah. Look, I, I've been in business now for 27 years. Um, the problems we're solving today organizationally are no different than what we were solving at GE with Action Workout, uh, you know, <laughs> or CAP, where we're, we're trying to find ways to get people to collaborate to make uh, better decisions. Yeah. So uh, that'll never change. We're human beings. Uh, do you buy into this idea that the best way for people to work is actually to be co-located? Rather you know, than I've, uh, I've flip-flopped on that a couple times, um, you know, because one, I, uh, I like a company with as few rules as possible, and I want people, FaceTime's not, not valuable to anybody. Um, you know, if uh, you want to come in as early as you want, leave as late as you want, as long as you achieve your outcomes. So we're, I think organizations are best when they're outcome-focused rather than um, attendance-focused. Uh, so I've gone, you know, I ran an experiment with no vacation time, no personal time, you know, take as much time as you need whenever you need it. And I actually found that I needed to force people to take vacation because they were just, uh, you know, they were so focused on their outcomes. Um, similarly with uh, the remote worker, uh, you really need to embrace today's dual income uh, family. Um, and the needs of raising a family while having dual careers, mm. uh, particularly for the, uh, the, the, the female worker, worker oftentimes. So you need to create that flexibility. Um, but I think there's, I, I've, I've recognized there's something lost. So I think having someone be um, always remote and effective um, is not right. Uh, but having a bunch of rules on when you, know, you have to be here is also not right. right. So um, I think that'll ebb and flow. Um, my personal view is if you're outcome focused and the outcomes are correct, people are gonna do the right thing to get together to collaborate regardless. Um, you know, video is pretty good now. Hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, there's certain amount of clo uh, collaboration in a space, um, but used effectively, you know, a team collaboration on video can also be effective. Um, it's not. It's not easy when you get two. If you have three or four locations, you know, two locations work. Um, so it's a good question. I, I'm yeah. not sure. I have. I'm not sure. I have a great answer uh, no. for it uh, yet. I mean, I guess. But, it sort of leads um, me to the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which was, you know, if you if you now have a, a kind of a more progressive 21st century work environment, and you've got people that are collaborating on different platforms and more automation about routine things. What what really is the the future of enterprise IT and, and software? I mean, I think the future of enterprise IT and software is um, is a it's a wonderful place to be. I I, th I think uh, CIOs of tomorrow are are still going to be. They're not just plumbers now, right? Yeah, oh God, they're problem solvers, right? right? And they're and they're leveraging technology to to but they're, they're really enablers of um, the entire organization being problem solvers. 
So I think they need to be um, ensuring security. I think they need to be ensuring control. Um, uh, they need to be ensuring efficiency. Um, and they need to be ensuring um, and, and helping the organization prioritize what problems should we um, centrally solve for efficiency versus what problems can we um, solve decentralized for innovation and, and, and more rapid effectiveness, rapid change. Makes sense. Rick, it's been a great pleasure hanging out with you and uh, of course having you on the show. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. Thank you.